Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the podcast. And in this podcast, we're going to be talking about the legal case of Commonwealth versus Michelle Carter, the texting suicide case, which I've written about before and I wrote about yesterday. And the subject of the podcast is going to be a legal analysis of whether she will be able to prevail or should she prevail on her appeal of her conviction for involuntary manslaughter. Now, I did a very detailed article on this topic yesterday, and I'm going to be referring to the arguments I made in that article. So I would encourage everyone who's listening to go back and reread that article so you're familiar in a general sense with the train of thought that I'm going to be uh, following here. So this is the texting suicide case, the texting suicide case, Michelle Carter, a young girl, it's a Massachusetts case, happened in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And let's first give a very brief overview of what this case was about. Essentially, this was a case where you had a young girl with a boyfriend, and Michelle Carter is the girl's name, uh, Conrad Roy III is the male. And they were allegedly boyfriend and girlfriend. And she, uh, to put it bluntly, she was essentially encouraging this guy for a long period of time to commit suicide. This was a young man who had a history of of, um, uh, psychiatric problems. He had been receiving counseling. He had some problems. He was a troubled kid. He was what we would call a troubled kid. And his girlfriend which we should put in quotes, Angel of Death, Angel of Death would be a, uh, a more appropriate moniker. But this girlfriend of his somehow seized on this guy's weakness and essentially goaded him into killing himself. She was grooming him, conditioning him for death. And there's just no other way to describe it. It's a, it's a very disturbing case. And the reason why I've written about this case before, and actually did the research to analyze the legal issues involved, was because it's very, very interesting. It says a lot about modern society, a lot about, I think, the youth of today, and it says, or it involves a lot of nuances of the the law which are important to consider, because I think the analysis that I've seen in the media, this case received a, a lot of media attention, And almost all of it has been completely off base. Commentators focusing on this case as some kind of free speech case or it's uh, it's going to somehow have a chilling effect or cooling effect on on free speech. And all this uh, misguided and flatly wrong analysis. And I got so outraged, I got so angry from reading and hearing this stuff that I said, you know, I'm going to actually do the work myself, I'm going to do the research, and I'm going to put out what I think are the relevant issues, the salient points in this case. Because, frankly, I think that my analysis that I uh, published yesterday on my site is the most complete legal analysis of this case that I've seen. I haven't seen anyone else do anything except talk about either how... uh, how she's suffered an injustice or people going the other way talking about how the victim suffered an injustice. 
So that's the background of this case. The background of the case specifically was eventually this guy, Conrad Roy, got into a car and was planning on asphyxiating himself with carbon monoxide. And the defendant, Michelle Carter, was on the phone with him at the time, either through text or telephone. And literally, she's, you know, goading him into completing this act. At what point? At one point, he actually got out of the car and said, look, I don't want to do this. He disengaged from the plan. And she said, you know, get back in the car. Get back in that car. So he had actually broken off from his plan and she forced him to go back into it. And this was also someone who was planning to use his death to enhance her own social status. She was planning on using this kid's death as some form of attention-seeking mechanism. You know, she was going to establish a fund for him. She was going to get attention. So, and now she's portraying herself as the victim. Or at trial, her defense attorneys tried to portray her as the victim, as she was under the influence of medications and she didn't know what she was doing, and you know the usual litany of of excuses. Well. The case was tried before a judge. No no defense attorney, I think, would want to put this case before a jury because it's the type of case that's going to infuriate a jury. Infuriate. A jury is going to hate someone like this with a raw and primeval passion. As well, they should. So the case was tried before a judge, a juvenile court judge, Lawrence Moniz, and uh, he convicted her a couple months ago. And she was recently sentenced, recently sentenced to 15 months in prison. And the sentence was suspended. The execution of the sentence was suspended suspended pending the outcome of her appeal. Now, I haven't heard the arguments of the opposing parties for sentencing. And usually, usually what happens in sentencing in a criminal case is the judge will look at the defendant's criminal history. There'll be a pre-sentence investigation of some sort that he'll have in front of him as a report. And then uh, he'll have to look at the state laws. Some states have guidelines. They have sentencing guidelines which give a judge a, uh, a guideline to go by to impose some sort of uniformity in sentencing. And the guidelines will suggest the range of months that a, a person should get for a certain, um, you know, who has a certain criminal, uh, a criminal history. Like if the person has prior convictions, uh, the, the court will look at that. The court will also look at the severity level of the offense. And based on those factors, the individual defendant's circumstances, his prior convictions, or the, uh, and also the, the nature of the offense... The judge will also look at any possible mitigating factors, factors that tend to mitigate the harm caused, anything that would cause him to lower the punishment. The judge will also look at aggravating factors, any factors that are especially malicious or egregious that will cause him to enhance the punishment involved. So these are all the things that will come into play in sentencing. The judge gave the defendant 15 months. Personally, I think that was a little bit light, frankly. Even even for someone with no criminal history, even for someone who's a juvenile, I think the especially wicked nature of the offense, the 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 true evil involved here. This you know when, when you're actually 
you know, grooming someone to kill themselves, someone whom you know has a pre-existing mental condition, who's vulnerable, who's weak, who is not in full control of his faculties, to goad this person into the arms of death takes a certain incredible level of malice, an incredible level of moral turpitude and malice that goes far beyond the usual crime that a judge, I think, in a juvenile court is going to see, which are usually going to be things like property damage, drug use, DUIs, maybe assaults, and just routine things. This is something very, very different. This really uh, points to a complete absence of conscience. This is person is a danger, frankly, to society. This is someone who's a danger to others, a true, a true danger. Regardless, that's what the judge gave her. Uh, so now the battle shifts. Now the battle shifts to the appellate level because apparently her attorneys have appealed the conviction. And so now the issue becomes, will Michelle Carter prevail in her appeal? Or what are the legal merits of her appeal? What are the legal merits of her appeal? So that's what we're going to discuss here. That's what we're going to, going to discuss because no one is talking about this. Everyone is getting distracted with all of these red herrings. We call them red herrings in the law. These fake arguments, these non-existent arguments that are irrelevant to the case. This is not a free speech case. This is not a free speech case. This is a case of involuntary manslaughter. So now let's look at the legal standards and let's discuss the merits of the appeal. And what I've done in my article from yesterday, which you should go review, we, I've taken three of the most relevant cases from Massachusetts that talk about the legal standards of involuntary manslaughter. And I use these cases to frame the argument. So let's go and look and discuss how these tie into the merits of the appeal. And before I do that, I'll just give a quote from the ACLU, which of course never misses an opportunity to miss the issue. They're thundering about how unjust the Carter conviction is. They're, they're saying that it exceeds the limits of our criminal laws and violates free speech protections guaranteed by the Massachusetts and U.S. constitutions. The implications of this conviction go far beyond the tragic circumstances of Mr. Roy's death. If allowed to stand, Ms. Carter's conviction could chill important and worthwhile end-of-life discussions between loved ones across the Commonwealth. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. As if this case has anything to do about voluntary assisted suicide. As if this case has anything to do about free speech. It does not. This is a homicide, pure and simple. This is a homicide, people. It's a homicide. And the prosecutors did a very good job here in treating it as that, as staying focused on the issue. Staying focused on the issue. Let's look first at the case, the 2012 case of Commonwealth versus Pew. This is an interesting case. This is a case where a criminal prosecution was brought against a Massachusetts woman who, while in childbirth, ineptly delivered her child without the assistance of any medical professional. She then failed to summon medical help when she realized that things were going badly. Okay, The trial court 
found that she had committed wanton or reckless acts against her own fetus. But the conviction was reversed on appeal. And in the appellate court's opinion, uh, written opinion, they laid down some of the standards here that we need to think about. They said, We conclude that the evidence is insufficient to convict the defendant on the theory that she was wanton or reckless in her acts of commission. That is, exerting force to bring about the birth. Because the Commonwealth, that is the prosecutor, failed to prove that once she decided to give birth unassisted, the defendant had any alternative safe course of action. Additionally, we conclude that, in light of the judge's findings that the Commonwealth had not proved that the baby was born alive, or that summoning medical assistance would have saved the baby's life, there is insufficient evidence that the defendant's act of omission, that is, failure to call for assistance, was the legal or proximate cause of the baby's death. Now, the legal standards then were laid out by the court. The court said this. The court said involuntary manslaughter includes an unlawful homicide unintentionally caused by wanton or reckless conduct. I'll repeat that. We're going to be revisiting that. But involuntary manslaughter includes an unlawful homicide unintentionally caused by wanton and reckless conduct. Proof of recklessness requires more than a mistake of judgment or even gross negligence and has been defined as intentional conduct involving a high degree of likelihood that substantial harm will result to another. Wanton or reckless conduct is determined based either on the defendant's specific knowledge or on what a reasonable person should have known in the circumstances. If based on the objective measure of recklessness, the defendant's actions constitute wanton or reckless conduct if an ordinary normal person under the same circumstances would have realized the gravity of the danger, if based on the subjective measure, that is, the defendant's own personal knowledge, grave danger to others must have been apparent and the defendant must have chosen to run the risk rather than alter his conduct so as to avoid the act or omission which caused the harm. And as a general rule, the requirement of wanton or reckless conduct may be satisfied by either the commission of an intentional act or an intentional omission where there is a duty to act. Both commission, physical acts to dislodge the fetus and breach presentation from the birth canal, and omission, failing to summon medical assistance, were at issue in the case. And so when the court looked at all the facts and applied the standards, they found that there was really no reason to second-guess what had happened during the birth. They, they found out that, look, the mother acted reasonably under the circumstances. There really wasn't anything else she could do, and that even though her conduct may have been negligent, it did not rise to the level where involuntary manslaughter was the appropriate remedy. So the appellate court reversed the conviction. So... We next look at the case, a 2010 case of Commonwealth versus Life Care Centers of America. And this is an interesting case where an elderly resident of a nursing home fell down a flight of stairs outside the home and died. The woman was not wearing a prescribed security bracelet at the time. This is one of these bracelets, electronic bracelets, that would have set off an alarm and locked the front doors of the facility, thereby preventing her from falling down the steps. So the nursing home was indicted for the criminal case of uh, the criminal charge of involuntary manslaughter. And the court again reviewed the standards. The court said involuntary manslaughter is an 
unlawful homicide, unintentionally caused by an act which constitutes such a disregard of probable harmful consequences to another as to amount to wanton or reckless conduct. Okay. Wanton or reckless conduct generally involves a willful act that is undertaken in disregard of the probable harm to others that may result. Okay. And it also states that although the cases frequently note that the essence of wanton or reckless conduct is intentional, okay, the court said that reckless conduct does not require that the actor, that the defendant, intend the specific result of his or her conduct but only that he or she intended to do the reckless act. And this is very important. I'm going to repeat that. The requirement of wanton or reckless conduct doesn't require that the person uh, has to intend the result, the consequences of the conduct, but only that he or she intended to do, to do the, the reckless act. So you can't, in other words, you can't just get off by saying, hey, I didn't know it was going to happen. Okay. Accordingly, the court said when it refers to the intent required to support a conviction for involuntary manslaughter, it refers to the intent to perform the act that causes death and not the intent that a death occur. Okay. So, again, the court went on to say that uh, conviction for, of involuntary manslaughter requires more than just negligence, more than just negligence, negligence or even gross negligence. The act causing death must be undertaken in disregard of probable harm to others in circumstances where there is a high likelihood that such harm will result. A conviction of involuntary manslaughter can in some circumstances be based on a failure to act. If an individual's actions create a life-threatening condition, there is a duty to take reasonable steps to alleviate the risk created, and the failure to do so may, re may rise to the level of recklessness necessary for involuntary manslaughter. All right. And finally, our last case here, and I think this is a very, very fascinating case. It's a 2002 case from Massachusetts called the, called the case Commonwealth versus Levesque. L-E-V-E-S-Q-U-E. -E. And this is a very interesting case. It's the type of case that you would almost find in a, in a law book, a law textbook. And it's, in this case, there were several defendants were indicted for charges of involuntary manslaughter when they negligently caused a fire in a warehouse. What you had was a bunch of dirt bags in a warehouse. And they got into a fight with each other. This, this place was just a, a dive, apparently, just some, some, uh, some incredible dump, homeless uh, warehouse people living in a warehouse. They knocked over a lighted candle in the warehouse, caused a fire, tried to put it out, couldn't do so apparently, and then just left. They left the building without informing the authorities of the fire. So they just caused the fire and then left. The resulting fire was severe and it consumed or destroyed the lives of several firefighters. And the defendants were eventually caught and they were indicted for involuntary manslaughter. Their attorneys filed motions to dismiss the indictment. Apparently it was granted. And the prosecution appealed. And the case went to the Massachusetts Superior Judicial Court. And the Superior Court reversed the dismissal. And it said there was sufficient evidence to support the charges. And what's interesting about this case is it lays down the legal standard. It lays down the law which later cases elaborated on. And let's talk about that. 
First, again, uh, Massachusetts law does not define involuntary manslaughter by statute. It's not, it's not defined in a code or a statute. We have to look at the case law. Its elements are derived from the common law, which is case law. Involuntary manslaughter is an unlawful homicide, unintentionally caused by an act which constitutes such a disregard of probable harmful consequences to another as to constitute a wanton or reckless conduct. So that's the definition. And the defendants in the Levesque case argued that the evidence presented to the grand jury was insufficient to show probable cause because they said that they didn't have any duty to report the fire and that uh, it was not foreseeable that deaths would result from the fire that they caused. Now, the court, the Superior Court, the Massachusetts highest court, was unpersuaded by these arguments. They were unpersuaded by these arguments. The court said, we don't agree. The court said, our law, both civil and criminal, imposes a duty on people to act reasonably. Our law, both civil and criminal, imposes a duty on, imposes on people a duty to act reasonably. We have expressed agreement with this underlying principle. It is consistent with society's general understanding that certain acts need to be accompanied by some kind of warning by the actor. We agree with this principle and apply it to this case. Where one's actions create a life-threatening risk to another, there is a duty to take reasonable steps to alleviate the risk. The reckless failure to fulfill this duty can result in a charge of manslaughter. Where a defendant's failure to exercise reasonable care to prevent the risk he created is reckless and results in death, the defendant can be convicted of involuntary manslaughter. Public policy requires that one who creates by his own conduct a grave risk of death or injury to others has a duty and an obligation to alleviate this danger. Okay, So the court, in reversing the dismissal, based its decision on public policy, on sound public policy, which underlies and undergirds all of the law. It undergirds all of the law. And this is the duty to act reasonably. The duty to act reasonably. And if we look at the logic of the Levesque decision and apply it to the Michelle Carter facts and circumstances, there's no doubt, it leaves no doubt at all, that Michelle Carter's conviction for involuntary manslaughter uh, should stand should stand because her conduct was even more egregious than the conduct of the defendants in the warehouse fire. She actually created, through her own actions, the danger. She was the one hovering over this kid, hovering over Conrad Roy, Roy like the angel of death. She was the one who set him up for death. She was the one who was goading him on to death. She was the one who was on the phone with him at the time he was involved in the very act of killing himself. She was the one who ordered him back into the car when he had disengaged from his scheme or plan. He had disengaged from his scheme or plan and she ordered him back into the car, thus completing the chain of causation and becoming herself the proximate cause of this young man's death. The conduct is egregious, is, is, is unconscionable. It's shocking to the conscience. 
and without a doubt it's wanton and reckless conduct. She created the situation. She could very easily have used her cell phone to dial 911 to call for help. She could have acted like a reasonable person would have acted if they knew that someone, anyone, any stranger was about to kill themselves. They would have tried to stop the person from doing that. But she chose to do otherwise for her own twisted, sadistic pleasure. Sadistic attention-seeking pleasure. She decided to take a different course of action. And for this, for this unconscionable act, she was properly indicted, properly convicted, and maybe not properly sentenced, but at least properly convicted of involuntary manslaughter. Now, we can't fail to comment on the fact that this case raises uncomfortable and uh, raises uncomfortable feelings, I think, in many people because. I think the gender issues the gender issues involved are inescapable. Suppose the gender roles were reversed. I haven't commented on this, but I'm going to comment on it now because I think we all need to hear this. We all know the the reality here. If the gender roles were reversed and if you had a man egging on some young girl, vulnerable, psychologically vulnerable young girl to commit suicide and if she followed through on it, we'd be treated to lectures about toxic masculinity, we'd be treated to lectures about how uh, men need to have sensitivity training. Everyone is, uh, uh, we'd be getting all sorts of lectures about uh, all of these uh, male bashing themes, which are common now in the press. But we don't expect this type of conduct from a woman, from a young woman. And yet here it is, glaring everyone in the face, there for everyone to see. And I think this case exposes the dark underbelly of a lot of female conduct in modern America. Cruel, calculating, vindictive. And this is, I think, something that nobody really wants to talk about. Nobody really wants to talk about. I think you could probably extend this type of thing to, uh, I think, the, the, the moral vacancy that I think a lot of young people are being raised under now uh, finally comes to uh, to deliver its deadly harvest. When you bring people up with no sense of right or wrong, when you take out from the educational system all sense of training in character, in morals, in virtue, which for many centuries was done through the uh, under the guidance of religion or humanistic studies, all that's gone now. And what we have now are just literally animals walking the streets, and who seek nothing but to gratify their own desires, and who have no sense of responsibility to anyone else, uh, either themselves or to others in society. And that's what we see here. And this is the thing that really makes people uncomfortable about this case. You know, I don't want to dwell on the gender issue too much, but I will a little bit, because I think that is lurking in the background. I think it is lurking in the background. It's, it's, and it's no accident that you have some of the usual prominent feminist voices coming out with their usual parade of nonsense to talk about what a victim Michelle Carter is. And she's no victim. She's no victim. She's an aggressor. She's the angel of death. As I said in a previous article, the sinister puppeteer. The sinister puppeteer. So we've reviewed in this podcast the nature of the case, the legal arguments on appeal, and we've shown how 
the conviction should sustain, should survive appellate review. And hopefully it does. Hopefully it does. I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.